You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. On behalf of the United States Institute of Peace, we are very pleased to welcome everyone to our bipartisan congressional dialogue series, a signature USIP initiative that brings together leaders from both political parties to discuss national security issues. We are honored to have with us Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs and Congressman Peter Mayer to discuss new threats to peace and security in countries which are fragile or in conflict. This conversation comes in the middle of the Democracy Summit, which brings together more than 100 democratic countries from around the world to discuss pressures on democracies and what we can do to help each other. In his opening speech at the summit yesterday, President Biden sounded a number of alarm bells. The president talked about the shocking rise in coups around the world, the spread of authoritarianism, the erosion of trust in public institutions, and crackdowns on the press, civil society, and political opposition in many countries. The implications of these trends are clear and worrying. As democracy recedes, the potential for conflict within states, between states, and between blocks of states cannot be ignored. Many experts are now openly wondering whether we are headed to a future global confrontation. This is why it's so important to step back, to look at our strategies for preventing conflict, to look at our strategies for helping to stabilize fragile countries, including through the 2019 Global Fragility Act, and to step back and look at our strategies for promoting the American approach to peace building. Congresswoman Jacobs and Congressman Meyer are uniquely poised to support this work. They both serve on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and they both engage and support bipartisan congressional caucuses that bring Republicans and Democrats together. They also bring real-world experiences that give them deep insight into the drivers of conflict and instability and what can be done to deal with these. Congresswoman Jacobs has worked in the State Department's Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. She has provided senior foreign policy advice and guidance to Secretary Clinton and has held senior positions in the United Nations. Congresswoman Jacobs founded Project Connect, which links students from around the world to the internet. Congressman Meyer served with the Army Reserves in Iraq where he conducted intelligence operations to protect American and allied forces. He has worked with Team Rubicon, a veteran-based disaster response organization, and has led humanitarian operations in Afghanistan, the Philippines, and South Sudan. In Afghanistan, Congressman Meyer delivered emergency assistance to aid workers after kidnappings and targeted killings. USIP is deeply committed to conflict prevention. The Institute currently has more than 300 initiatives in 85 countries, and we are present on the ground in 16 countries where US interests are at stake. Of our many programs focused on conflict prevention and fragility, we are particularly proud that we were asked to convene, host, and support the bipartisan congressionally mandated task force 
on extremism in fragile states in 2018 and 2019, which recognized that conflict prevention, mitigation, and resolution are the hallmarks of U.S. peace building. Congresswoman Jacobs and Congressman Meyer, thank you for being with us today. We are honored to invite both of you for your introductory comments. We'll then have a moderated discussion and with your permission, we'll open the floor to the audience for their comments and questions to you. We invite everyone to join us via the USIP chat box on the event page and to join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag at BipartisanUSIP. May we invite Congresswoman Jacobs for your first comments. Well, thank you so much, Lise. Uh, thank you, Peter, for doing this panel with me. It's great to, to get to talk about the issues uh, that I know you and I are both so passionate about uh, in this forum. I'm so thrilled to be here talking today about one of my favorite subjects, how to improve our approach to preventing and stabilizing conflict abroad. Uh, as Liz mentioned, I've spent most of my career working on matters of peace and conflict, whether that was at the State Department or at the UN. Uh, and I personally think that there are a lot of opportunities to improve the way the U.S. approaches this work, including the Global Fragility Act, but also really important reforms at the State Department and USAID. So I'm really excited to speak with you both today about how we can do that in a part bipartisan way. And in the interest of getting to questions quickly, um, Lise, I'll turn it back over to you. Congressman, may we invite you for your first comments. Thank you, Lise. And, and it's likewise a pleasure to be here with you, Sarah. Um, I know this is something that I think even during new member orientation realized we both had a shared background in the international development um, space and, you know, Sarah coming from the State Department side, uh, myself coming from you know the military side, and then into conflict um, conflict analysis and humanitarian aid delivery in conflict zones. You know we've kind of seen how uh, well not only how fragile things are, but also how challenging it becomes once that dissent starts to occur, uh, and and how preventing that path from being uh, gone down in the first place uh, is a far more efficient way. It's a lot easier to keep something together than it is to put it back once it's been broken. Uh, and so the more that we can be focusing on that mitigation and prevention strategies, uh, the more we stand to benefit, frankly, as a, as a country and as a uh, folks who believe in a, a sense of shared humanity. And a lot of our adversaries, both geopolitical and, and military in the world, they benefit from chaos. They benefit from vacuums being created. They benefit from that anarchy. Uh, that is, you know, the, the realm of the, the speculator, the realm of the, um, of the malevolent actor, uh, and, you know, the, but there's a, there is that personal cost. There is that, that tangible human cost, uh, that, you know, anyone who has worked in humanitarian aid sees. And so now that we are in a position to hopefully be able to, uh, bring the knowledge that we have to bear on these issues and, and work to advance efforts at conflict mitigation and stabilization efforts. Um, you know, I'm excited that we can do that. So uh, I look forward to the questions and the conversation that we'll have today and honored to be here. Uh, thank you both very much for your first reflections. And our first question builds on those. We were hoping that you could share more with the audience about what motivates you to work on these issues and why it's so important that you work together on them. Um, we know that in Washington now, there's a lot of discussion about the way that bipartisanship has changed. And in some cases, it feels like it's receding. 
So we'd be very interested in your comments about why you think these are the sets of issues that require this kind of common approach. Congresswoman? Uh, well, thank you for the question. I, I mean, for me, the, the answer uh, on why I work on these issues is, is pretty simple. I try and work on the biggest problems that are affecting the most vulnerable people. Um, and I think it's clear that conflict uh, is that, you know, we know uh, the cost is huge. Um, over the last 18 years, we've lost 10,000 American lives and 50,000 have been wounded in counterterrorism operations at the expense of 5.9 trillion dollars to U.S. taxpayers. And we know that uh, for the global economy, the impact of conflict was $14 trillion and the costs of violent conflict were over $800 billion just in 2017. And so as we're looking at all of our other priorities and all the other gains that we've made around economic development, around human rights, um, we know that so much of that can be turned back um, because of conflict and that the best thing we can do to pr protect those are to make sure that we are working in a preventative way, that we are doing the kinds of things we know that uh, that work um, and that save money, right? The UN and the Institute for Economics and Peace estimated the cost-effectiveness ratio of investments geared toward prevention at $16 state for every dollar invested. Um, and I think every uh, American president will probably tell you that they came into office with some grand plans and some foreign conflict or intervention or um, event happened that that changed that. And I think we've certainly seen that in, in the recent past. And so um, for me, it's really about making sure we're, we're we're doing what we need to do so we don't get left in a situation where we only have bad options left. In terms of bipartisanship, I, I think it's the same thing. These are issues of war and peace are probably the most important issues that we in Congress are asked to decide upon. Um, they're real people's lives that we are making decisions about. And that shouldn't be a partisan exercise. And, and it needs to be something that we find a way to work on together. And we find a way to get back to the place where um, politics ends at the water's edge. Thank you. Congressman. Politics at the water's edge being a, uh, a, a quote largely attributed to Senator Arthur Vandenberg, a fellow Grand Rapidian um, from the prior era. But no, I, I strongly agree uh, with what Sarah said. I, I will say the one maybe additional thing is there, you know, there's no natural constituency, uh, maybe with exceptions of communities abroad that, you know, have, uh, have large um, populations in the U S but, you know, this is not an issue uh, or at least foreign conflicts, you know, by and large, they, they don't fit cleanly along um, partisan lines, political lines. There's not really much to be gained or lost um, from it. I mean, it, truly is a, a, a way of in a place where we can exercise, you know, our fiduciary responsibility to be thinking in the long term and, and ensuring that um, whether it's a, well, yeah, ensuring that we are not continuing to promote and, and, um, and tolerate conditions that will lead to greater challenges in the future for the United States, and in the short term, you know, lead to uh, humanitarian uh, crises. Uh, now, I think one area that, well, in this, in the, in dealing with humanitarian aid, and dealing with conflict prevention, and dealing with foreign policy, um, or or at least not foreign policy as it pertains to our direct allies, but you know, at that more uh, the civil level, there's no. Um, 
a lot of our a lot of the things we're fighting against in terms of just engaging with an issue, we're fighting against apathy. We're fighting against people who just don't really want to have to deal with something, right? And that's where we as as legislators are able to bring attention, are able to bring focus, um, are able to to try to shepherd and marshal resources. So, you know, I think there are, um, and, I, and I'm sure Sarah would agree with this, there's nothing that warms the heart of somebody who wants to engage in a bipartisan way, especially in very partisan times, than being able to find an issue and say, all right, this has been a miserable day, a miserable week, tensions are high, you know, what can we work together on that can make us feel good about where we're at right now? And on the foreign policy side, um, you know, when, when the doors close and we're in a closed door briefing, you know, it's not posturing. I mean, it's sincere questions where folks who have wildly divergent domestic political views uh, oftentimes wind up, you know, finding a lot of commonality um, because you're not, you know, debating, you know, the relative merits or X, Y, and Z. You're, you're diagnosing and understanding what can we do to prevent additional suffering and additional catastrophe. And that, that's not a Republican or Democratic issue. That's an American issue. Um, Congressman, you know, there's been a lot of discussion in the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the pull down in Iraq, about whether the approaches that the U.S. has been taking to these difficult countries, to fragile contexts, to countries that are in conflict, whether the approaches have been the right ones and whether they remain relevant. We know, of course, that you have served with distinction in Iraq. You've worked in humanitarian missions in the Philippines, in South Sudan, and in Afghanistan. Congressman, we would be very interested in what you think the lessons are that we should draw from U.S. engagement in fragile states over the past 10 years, over the past 20 years? I mean, number one, we have to be honest um, with the mistakes that we've made, and we need to be looking in the mirror in a very hard and clear way because we cannot change the past, but we can make sure we don't repeat those mistakes that we learn from them that we make the necessary modifications. And clearly in Afghanistan, um, there was never unity of effort or there was never a, a strategy uh, that aligned all of the individual tactics that were being you know, cobbled together. So you know, great example is the interplay between you know, the intelligence community, trying to get information, and then in, in the process of that, promoting or undercutting, uh, promoting bad actors or undercutting efforts at uh, state competency building or the way in which um, you know, a specific military objective may run roughshod over you know, a development um, initiative. Uh, there are you know, just absolute bonkers, bizarre stories that some of which I've lived and some of which others have relayed to me of, you know, burning down a, a poppy field one day and then uh, coming back and giving, you know, because that was the counter narcotics mission and then turning around and realizing on your counterinsurgency mission, um, you paying that farmer to regrow his poppy field so that he didn't join the Taliban. I mean, just the, the self-licking ice cream cone of it all. Um, and, you know, that, that enabled, um, yeah, staggering sheer incompetence at so many ways, but not, um, 
you know, a bunch of very, very smart and dedicated individuals, but whose project uh, in the aggregate ended up being ultimately self-defeating. Mm-hmm. So we owe it to ourselves and the Global Fragility Act um, that we're both you know, supporters of and, and have asked for more clarity uh, from the administration and the State Department on how they choose to proceed in a number of areas. Uh, we'll get a little bit into that. We just had a, a broader Afghan War Commission uh, that went through the NDAA uh, that I supported a, a standalone uh, version of um, that will you know, have a, a look at the entirety of, of this conflict. Um, but we need to be taking a very firm and hard look at how our development, intelligence, diplomatic, and uh, and defense components, how that all plays together, uh, because we cannot afford to continue to promote instability through our own uh, incompetent actions. Hmm. Congresswoman, when Congress passed the Global Fragility Act, uh, nearly two years ago. Um, part of it was to try and address the lessons learned that Congress and Meyer has just discussed. We know that federal agencies have begun implementing the law. What we're very interested in your reflections on is what does success look like under this framework? How do we avoid the things that Congress and Meyer has just touched on? And what would you like to see come out of this law in the next year, the next five years, the next 10 years? Well, thank you. It's a really um, important question. And Peter, I think you're exactly right about a a lot of those issues. I I think part of it is that, and I will say this as a member of Congress, we in Congress need to be a little bit um, realistic about what this framework actually can do and what the timelines are and recognize what it will do and recognize where more we need to work because it can't actually accomplish everything that we need to in this space. Um, And I've been really active in encouraging the administration to move forward with selecting countries so that we can get to the process of devising those robust strategies and implementing them. And I'm pleased we're starting to see some of those important steps right now. Um, But I think what's really important uh, in implementation uh, of the Global Fragility Act is that um, along with Peter's diagnosis, I think one of the key issues and, and potentially the roots of some of of what he said is that we didn't have a good understanding of what was actually happening on the ground. We weren't well connected to the local community. And so we weren't seeing some of these signs or if they were being seen, they weren't getting elevated to the right level. And so as we're looking at the Global Fragility Act implementation, you know, the law does require that the administration involves civil society in consultation with their strategy. But I think that it's really important that we keep pushing that they get that right so that we can make sure that our goals make sense and are realistic um, and that they are involving local organizations and having true buy-in from the community because I think that's really one of the things that we learned. We, we made all these grand strategies back here in Washington and often they were implemented in ways that just didn't make sense for the context. Um, you know, Peter talked about the counter drug interventions. Um, we didn't have very basic knowledge about the form of government the population actually wanted and expected or, and we weren't sensitive to how some of our activities were perceived. So I think it's really important that we have these feedback loops and, and 
as we have these feedback loops that we have the capacity and flexibility to make changes in response to developments on the ground. So it's not just that we're getting the information, but we're actually changing as a result. We, we're not that great at that in the U.S. government. It often takes multiple years to get a program designed. And then if something happens on the ground, those changes um, don't necessarily um, get reflected or, or they're slow. Um, and so I think making sure we have this clear communication between Congress and the executive branch and realistic expectations uh, of what the interagency needs and, 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 and how we can make sure we're getting context from the ground. Um, to me, that will be, that will be success. And that will, um, hopefully make sure that we have, uh, what we need to, to avoid some of the mistakes of the past. Um, Congresswoman, we, you mentioned that um, the Global Fragility Act is going to be piloted in um, several countries and that we expect to know what those countries are uh, very shortly. Are there specific countries you would like to see on that first set of pilot countries? Uh, you know, one of the areas I've been spending a lot of time on um, is Mozambique um, and the conflict that's happening there. Um, and I think that it is a country that's really ripe for the kind of approach that the Global Fragility Act would bring. Um, I think that there's another, uh, you know, there are a lot of places we can focus on. Um, and uh, I know that the interagency process is, is ongoing right now. And um, I'm excited to work with the administration to make sure we get, we get this in implemented quickly and implemented well. Thank you for that. Um, we have a question um, from the audience for both of you. Um, Congressman, maybe we can start with you. The question is um, about our counterterrorism operation, something that I know you are very familiar with. Um, the question is about a recognition that uh, we increasingly see across the government and across the military across civil society, that although our operations have been important and have a significant, have had a significant impact, they may not on their own be sufficient to address the spread of violent extremism. And from your perspective, what do you think has worked well in these kinds of operations? And what do you think needs to change in our approach so that we can actually start to stop the spread of extremism? Yeah, I think this is one of those you know, kind of reality check moments where if you, um, well, setting Afghanistan aside, you know, if you look at, at Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, and ask the question, um, well, there's Sahelian region as well. Look, look at look, look at the entire continent of Africa and ask the question: Now, are extremist groups more powerful today than they were, you know, in 2000? Look at um, the uh, Arabian Peninsula, look at the Levant, look at the Middle East more broadly, uh, look at the uh, Central Asia, the Caucasus. Um, are extremist groups, do they have greater purchase and greater footing today than 20 years ago? Uh, and I think that answer is unquestionably yes. And so if we look at what we have done, it has clearly in the in the whole been ineffective and in there are part of some places where our, our counterterrorism efforts have been counterproductive uh if you know not just ineffective um i think the mindset we still have is you know we the sort of semantic slippage between thinking if we drop bombs you know that's doing something that is a counter-terror operation and it inherently should be countering the terror um, now uh, excessive civilian fatalities then work as a fantastic recruitment tool of uh, the more that we 
it, the more we internationalize what are oftentimes local issues uh, so that it becomes a with us or against us mentality. And then a, a local group that of not particular prominence all of a sudden gets on the radar because they kind of got the endorsement from the you know US military that they are a you know al-qaeda you know level uh, organization by virtue of us bombing them um, so there's a lot of ways in which that has been counterproductive i think it's every single area where we um, are trying to address those you know extremist factions that then slip into an insurgency, slip into, you know, terror tactics. You need to understand what is the wellspring, right? Where is that coming from? Why are there individuals in that community that are willing to engage and willing to support it? If it is addressing a local issue, if this is about a tribal dispute that goes back decades or a century over a well, then probably viewing it as a, you know, transnational jihadist uh, potential element is not going to be particularly effective. Now, if you're talking about um, a more nihilistic entity like ISIS, uh, then it is far less about local level conditions that may provide some, but that is not the overall ideology. So I think all that the spectrum of approach means you cannot just look at it from 40,000 feet, pick a couple of people to kill and then say, great job done. Right. I mean, if anything, that approach has been counterproductive and has only led to more growth of these organizations. It requires a hands-on approach, it requires alignment of intelligence, of, of diplomatic abilities, of, of development, of potentially you know, state building or at least institutional competency building, finding what elements are strong in that area. Uh, and frankly, that's going to lead to some uncomfortable bedfellows and allies because the folks who cozy up to us when we invade a place uh, are usually not the purest of heart ideologues. They're oftentimes grifters and, and corrupt uh, individuals. Uh, but, you know, we, 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 we wind up in, in that one camp or the other um, rather than stepping back and saying, what are we here to do? Are we here to promote stability or are we here to achieve a broader objective? And the more humble we are, the more narrow we are, the more accurate we are, uh, and the more realistic and pragmatic we are, the better a chance of actually achieving what we've set out to do. Um, Congressman, do you feel that the Global Fragility Act will allow you to do the type of telescoping, allow us, the U.S. to do the type of telescoping that you've just described? So I hope so. And I think it's it's our best opportunity to address that legislatively right now. Um, I, Sarah had mentioned interagency several times. Um, I, I shudder when I hear interagency only because then I, I hear, uh, I serve on, on um, in addition to foreign affairs, which you both serve on, I also serve on, on homeland security and the amount of times it, it just, the interagency becomes an email forwarding and then setting up a meeting four weeks later to, to get told that it actually belongs back in the original uh, but that's a, that's a different argument about legislative prerogatives and our oversight function. Um, so I, I think that in, in terms of not only providing a, a legislative imprimatur and, and a, a sign that this is something that's important, uh, but also allowing those test cases. And again, not trying to bite off the whole apple, but looking at places where we should align um, in a way that is a bit, that hopefully can secede um, or, or go past one administration. You know, I think that's oftentimes the issue is if our foreign policy, uh, when it gets dovetailed under domestic policy and viewed as something that, that isn't necessarily on the longer horizon that it needs to be, uh, can be challenging. So both there, there are, <coughs> there are elements within, um, 
within our diplomatic and development sphere that do engage on a longer horizon. There are ones within our legislative sphere that do engage on a longer horizon. Being able to dovetail both of those with a degree of specificity, I think, um, offers tremendous promise. Congresswoman, what is your view about the types of operations that we've had that have focused on counterinsurgency objectives? And what would be your expectations about how they need to change? Yeah, well, um, I agree with everything Peter said, uh, which you'll probably get tired of us saying on this uh, forum, I imagine. Um, but, you know, for me, I think that that we've actually made quite a lot of mistakes and, and made a lot of mistakes that are pretty harmful to how um, we are, are going about things. Uh, as Peter said, I would argue we're much worse off in terms of violent extremism now than we were 10 or 20 years ago. And so um, having really looking deeply at, at what we're doing and, and how we're doing it, I, I think is incredibly important. You know, when I was at the State Department in the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations, we uh, were working on uh, looking at how we could change the way we we prevent and counter violent extremism. We work very closely with USIP on this, um, setting up the, the Resolve Research Network, which I think has done great work in, in trying to get that local perspective up in with academia. And I know my team uh, still uses it uh, for a, a lot of uh, information. Um, but, but what we did as part of that is we looked at all the different empirical studies on what factors drive violent extremism, what leads an individual to join, but also as Peter mentioned is important, what, what leads a community to be more sustainable it's not just about an individual joining, it's the, it's the whole community. And what we found is that actually a lot of the conventional wisdom around this issue is frankly wrong. This is not an issue of poverty. This is not an issue of hatred of the West, not an issue of madrasa education. Um, actually, what we found is that the most empirical evidence links violent extremism and factors like state violence, state repression, absence of civil liberties. And so when you look at our approach, when you look at what we do to address violent extremism and terrorism abroad, um, you either see us doing a lot of things that directly feed into the very factors that are the most correlated, and then we are running programs to counter it that are on the things that are important for their own right, poverty alleviation, but aren't necessarily what are going to get you to reducing violent extremism. So if we're really serious about addressing these issues, I think we need to have a really honest conversation with ourselves and our partners about the implications of abuse and impunity. Um, and how we work with partner countries around the world, um, you know, uh, I am still in meetings where people are like, oh, we know they're not the best partners, but they're really helping us on this counterterrorism operation. And I'm like, we are, we are still making these same decisions that in the interest of short-term gains, actually putting ourselves further behind the eight ball in the long-term in terms of, of this issue. And, and the last thing I'll say um, is that as Peter mentioned, especially in Africa, I find that we take these groups that really are local and because they decide to try and get the aura of this, these broader international groups, they either use the name or get some money or espouse some ideology. Most of the time, it's not really what the group is about. Um, and then we label them violent extremist groups. We label them terrorist groups. We change the whole way we engage with them. Um, but we actually know how to, how to work on these kinds of 
complex. We do it in other places all the time. And we know that that means it's really a political solution. It's really about making sure the government is bringing often these usually farther away provinces in getting the resources they need, that people are feeling heard, that they're, they're part of the political process. That's how we work on these kinds of conflicts. But as soon as we put the label terrorist or violent extremist on, all of a sudden we decide we can't negotiate with terrorists. There's only a security response and we can't do the exact things that we know work to end these kinds of conflicts. Congressman, it was, Congresswoman, it was very striking when you were saying we know what we think is driving these programs. We've designed uh, these initiatives, these, you know, this extremism. We've designed programs to try and address those, but we've got the analysis wrong. It's very striking to hear you say that. And if you allow, you mentioned the Resolve Network, which I know is something that um, you've been very familiar with and promoting. Can you say a few more words about how that works and why you have confidence in that? Yeah. Um, well, when when we were setting it up uh, at uh, uh, the State Department in partnership with USIP, I think we really had a sense that there were all these local researchers on the ground who had a much better understanding of what was going on. And yet all of the research was being done by people from the West flying in with our Western approach on how to look at these things. And so how could we marry those two perspectives? And more importantly, how can we make sure that in the work we're doing to try and help places, we're actually getting the resources to the people who are in those places and not just continuing to uh, have the approach where the, the money all stays with us and then we go and do something somewhere else, right? Like, um, I think I think we can all agree that we need to get our development and our uh, approach away from that. And so um, the Resolve Research Network is really designed to help better utilize these local researchers as we try and answer these questions. Um, and uh, I think it's been really helpful. Um, Liz, you probably know better than I all of the many great things they've done since I uh, stopped working on uh, on it at the State Department, but um, I, I think it is really helpful to try and figure out all the different ways that we can start building in this local perspective, both through local consultation when we're actually doing the programming, but also making sure that, that we're actually utilizing local researchers in the empirical evidence and analysis base that we're using to design these programs. Well said. We have a question for um, both of you. It's about the importance of stabilization and conflict prevention in light of the strategic rivalries and great power competition that we're experiencing both with Russia and of course, very much with China. Um, a number of observers have said that conflicts, even in countries that are very far from our shores, could become flashpoints between us and Russia or us and China. And the question is, what should we be doing now to mitigate the potential for dragging the great powers into a localized conflict? And how do we protect our national security interests better within the rivalries that we now see? Um, Congresswoman, can we start with you and then over to the Congressman? Sure. Well, you'll probably be unsurprised to know from my previous answer that I think the most important thing we can do is not fall back into that approach we had in the Cold War, where we tried to just counter everything the other side did, um, and that we just... Um, you know, take on commitments because China happens to be there. Um, I don't think it's smart in terms of prioritizing our national security, um, but I also think that it, it, it leads to this very 
issue that we were just talking about, which is that we, we then side with a partner because they're the anti-China, anti-Russia partner, but it doesn't mean they're actually upholding our values around democracy or human rights, um, that they're not committing these security sector abuses. And I would argue that a, a good number of what we're seeing uh, of conflict right now is because of some of those unsavory choices we made in the Cold War in the interest, again, of this short-term security that in the long term is actually um, has had really negative impacts on our national security. And so being really mindful that we don't need to just one for one counter them wherever they are, that we understand what our real national strategic interests are um, and where we don't have national strategic interests, um, and that we understand that the broader goal of of an international rules-based system is actually what is going to keep our national security safe. And so eroding that rules-based system in the interest of winning a point here or there on the board is actually going to set us back. Congressman? I think that's a very a very um, kind of trenchant point uh, that Sarah made on, you know, we, we can't lose sight of what it is that actually supports us here, right? I mean, it is that rules-based order that gives us an edge and that then provides a degree of cover and protection for our allies in the world and undermining that uh, in, in the interest of a short-term or, or kind of more localized or sorry, more, um, you know, kind of isolated conflict uh, can spin out. And, and we've, we've seen that occur. Um, I would say that there are areas where it's a, a kind of a great power offensive competition and in areas where it's a bit more of a great power defensive competition. I think Ukraine and the way in which Russia has tried to destabilize Ukraine is a wonderful example, you know, the way we are, uh, well, combined with um, a, a, a different case, but obviously Chinese threats uh, to Taiwan and, and their one China policy with increasing belligerence and the uh, intervention into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. So though I put those two in a slightly different area than say great power competition in Africa writ large, that has largely been driven by a uh, Chinese investment under their Belt and Road Initiative um, and, and significant you know, diplomatic in treaties. Now, what we have seen is that the less savory uh, a, a country, um, the, or at least government, uh, the more uh, willing to commit human rights abuses, the more willing to um, to pit elements of the population against each other to engage in actions that are beyond the pale in our um, in our conception. Uh, the more likely that those uh, dictators uh, turn to an autocratic. Uh, great power or autocratic regional power for some top cover. Um, and I think that can oftentimes be incredibly challenging. We've seen that in South America with, with Venezuela. We've seen that in Central America uh, with Nicaragua. I think it's no surprise that Nicaragua just uh, earlier this week um, stopped, ident stopped recognizing Taiwan. Uh, now that I'm sure came with some wonderful strings attached from their, you know, new and strengthened Chinese partners. So, you know, we, we have to be mindful of the, of a, the, the fact that a government, you know, in, in any particular country, that is a snapshot in time. Um, and, and we should be applying appropriate pressure, but, you know, we also, 
shouldn't be so naive as to think that um, so it may be bad today, but it could be worse tomorrow. And I think Iraq is a fantastic example of this. Now, any area in which we're involving ourselves, we also need to make sure that a if if a win is an American win, then a defeat is an American defeat. And there, that then attracts countries that may not otherwise really care or have much of a, a reason to um, to involve themselves in a certain space, except to see the U.S. humbled and taken down a peg. Right? Russia undermining us in Afghanistan and some of the work that they did with the Taliban and the Afghani network is a wonderful case in point, um, which frankly was the same reason why we went into Afghanistan you know, 40 years ago. It was to be able to undermine, to be able to, to, to kneecap, to hobble our adversary in another area. So the more that we can be um, promoting a rules-based order, uh, but also engaging in ways that are not simply diplomatic, not simply defense, not simply development, uh, but tying using those tools to create enduring economic value and enduring economic relationships, uh, that will be able to then build bridges to civilian society and hopefully support and maintain a degree of prosperity that will not only echo into you know, the, the government relations, if well done and, and institutionally built, uh, but then also promote ties that will be far more enduring than maybe a security alliance of convenience. Um, Congressman, there's um, a consensus in Washington that it's probably time for the U.S. to put more emphasis on uh, diplomacy. We've had a, a question from the audience, knowing your background, um, working previously in diplomacy. The question is, what do you think that we need to do in order to strengthen our country's diplomatic capabilities? Sorry, was that to me or Peter? That was for you. Oh, great, great, yes. <laughs> well, I think this is one of the most important issues because it's true that the State Department does not have the capacity and resources it needs to really play a leading role in pursuing our national security interests. And I think we see it time and again. I can tell you, I see it when I'm traveling in countries around the world that our foreign policy is still being led by the Pentagon because they're the ones with the resources, they're the ones with the capacity. Um, and frankly, they're the ones that our leaders often listen to. Um, and so um, that really skews our uh, foreign policy and it skews the way we think about and engage uh, with countries around the world and it skews importantly, the way countries in the world engage with us, because they start to believe that the security cooperation, the security assistance, what they're doing on counterterrorism for us or some other issue is the thing we care the most about, um, because that's what they're seeing the most about um, and, and hearing the most about. Um, so I think we have a long way to go on this front. Um, Congress just passed a state authorization bill for the first time in nearly two decades. Um, and even then, we passed it in the same vote as the National Defense Authorization Act. And um, the, the dollar figure will uh, comparison uh, does not uh, look favorably. And uh, more importantly, it's, it's not even really enough for what we actually need to fund, rebuild, and fully invest in our diplomatic core. So um, I think we need to rebuild our diplomatic core, but we also need to empower them, modernize them, embrace forward-looking. Um, it's not just about staffing, but impact. And so we need to reform and change practices to create the kinds of diplomats that are reflective of U.S. leadership. 
Um, I think, uh, we also need to refigure a little bit right now. Um, in part because of this capacity constraint, everything is mostly reactive. We react to things that happen around the world. We react to crises as they come up. Um, and so we need to figure out a way to be more proactive and to do preventative work and to be able to have better information from the ground so our diplomats can adequately inform policymakers. So one of the things I'm working on right now is, is uh, trying to figure out how we can get our diplomats to leave the embassy compounds more, to regularly and meaningfully engage with civil society. We know there's a lot of security concerns. We know Congress has played a role in uh enhancing the security concerns. And so how do we, um, how do we make sure that we're pushing back and starting to actually let diplomats do their jobs? Um, I also think, um, you know, it's a key lesson from all the SIGR reports that the civilian agencies were too understaffed, too under-resourced to really play a leading role. And so we get the military doing all sorts of things that, that the military really shouldn't be doing. Um, so, um, you know, that's why uh, I'm working on this bill. It's the uh, Diplomatic Support and Security Act with uh, Congressman Adam Kinzinger. Um, and I think it, it's really about making sure we're focusing on risk management rather than risk avoidance, um, because we need our diplomats, again, to be out there and doing their jobs. And so I think this is one step. Um, we're also working to make sure that um, USAID has what they need to be able to work with local partners more. Um, you know, a lot of these institutions were set up uh, at the end of World War II, the height of the Cold War. Uh, we live in a very different world right now. We have information quicker than we used to. We can um, do things quicker. We have more data available. And so how can, um, how can we make sure that we are rebuilding the State Department and USAID in a way that reflects what the world really looks like now and, and the kinds of tools and, and practices that we know that we're going to need. Um, Congressman, this is in many ways a companion question that's come from the audience to the one that um, Congresswoman Jacobs has just answered. Um, but this one focuses on the Department of Defense. And the question is, what renewed focus and investments does the Department of Defense need to make so they can do a better job in stabilization and in conflict? And there's a very specific corollary here where the, the colleague says, or should DOD just simply choose the easier kinetic option over the harder, slower civil society-based approach, which the Congresswoman has spoken about with such um, interest and passion? Congressman? Now, I would say one thing that definitely needs to change um, is, is the way in which the Department of Defense is oriented towards, um, frankly, de minimis regional or, or, or country expertise. Um, you know, we had a little bit of an effort with this, with the Afghan hands program um, that was um, you know, quite minimal in its, its actual reach, but that, that goal of not having, you know, the, the war as it, you know, is often described in Afghanistan of being a, not a 20 year war, but a one year war fought 20 times. Uh, so building a bit more of that knowledge and that relationship, I think one of the strongest things the department of defense has that has been a, a wonderful, um, means of, promoting stability and, 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 and building, you know, strong relationships has been the ways in which uh, we have, uh, you know, bilateral 
training missions and exercises and other opportunities for members of our military and members of our or allied or you know other international militaries to, to come together to learn from each other, uh, but to also build personal ties to enhance understanding um, and, and to have the type of relationship that can be used to diffuse a conflict or can be used to get, you know, just like, you know, frankly, similar to how our diplomats do it, but in a, a less structured and less formal engagement where everything isn't, you know, long readouts of cables and very stilted organized meetings, uh, but you're getting a bit more ground truth. So I, I think more of a regionalization within various combatant commands, um, or at, at the very least, I mean, a, you know, how we have our, our attache uh, program, um, having that degree of regional focus could be highly impactful. Um, but I also, you know, Sarah was mentioning getting our, our diplomats out more. Um, this was my paramount frustration in Afghanistan. I still have no idea why we had so many people there because they didn't leave. They could have just zoomed in from Foggy Bottom and been as impactful. Um, I did not meet a single State Department employee with the exception of an RSO at Kandahar Airfield once. I did not meet a single State Department employee the entire 18 months I was in Afghanistan. And to me, when we spent close to a billion dollars on an embassy complex, uh, staff with hundreds of people, it's just a tremendous waste of money. I get it. It was a great place to go. Punch the ticket. Say you went there, you know, been there, done that, got the T-shirt. And now it's on my, you know, personnel file and hopefully will be considered positively for a promotion down the line. Um, but that way in which the institutional incentives, if they don't align with um, or the personnel incentives, if they don't align with the institutional incentives, and if we aren't focused on building understanding, you know, but rather giving the perception of it, uh, we'll always find ourselves back in the similar position. But I will also say that to the to the second part of the question, um, you know, the DOD's role here should be quite limited. Um, you know, there are there are benefits. There are benefits to some of our uh, foreign military, you know, training um, operations. The uh, uh, the, the foreign internal defense, the FID components that our Green Berets were really created to do, um, you know, civil affairs, you know, can do some humanitarian missions. Um, I think there are a lot of ways in which that can be used, but it should be, again, augmenting diplomatic or, or development goals rather than an other than kinetic way of trying to achieve a military objective. Cause I think that oftentimes uh, undercuts that mission because it's routed again towards a military opportunity uh, rather than supporting efforts that will hopefully mitigate and prevent the need for that to occur down the line. Congresswoman, we all know that we're in the middle of a democracy summit that's taking place this week. And we have a, a question that's come from our audience about how important we think it is to work jointly with like-minded partners and allies, as well with multilateral efforts to build stability and prevent conflict around the world. Knowing that you've had senior positions in the US government and senior positions in the UN, uh, the question is um, over to you. <laughs> well, um, you know, frankly, I think it's crucial because the fact of the matter is the United States is never going to put in everything we need to do to be able to adequately prevent these conflicts. And so much of what we do and what we need to do is around 
creating incentive structures where people in those countries are making decisions that are, are more focused on good governance than on whatever other thing um, they could be making decisions on. And so to do that, you have to have partners pulling in the same direction. Um, you know, I think it's important that we align our goals and strategies and work um, on peace and stability and not have competing and overlapping efforts in a given country, um, in part because it means not, none of our efforts will be as successful. Um, in, in these multilateral efforts, I also think it's really key to coordinate with partners who champion accountability and justice in conflict settings and reject cycles of impunity. The more countries who understand and commit to these issues, the better off civilians in conflict will be. And I think this goes right back to the whole the whole point of the Democracy Summit, the whole key um, to our national security moving forward is this international rules-based order. And so not only do we need to work with our partner democracies to make sure we're protecting from the back sliding in our own democracies um, and that we are supporting democracy around the world, but also that we are doing the really hard accountability and justice and, um, you know, anti-impunity work against ourselves as well, because the more we ourselves uh, abandon the rules of the international order, the, the less um, that they'll be able to protect us in the future. Um, we have uh, two final questions. Um, one of them is about um, age and youth and energy, and the other one is about bipartisanship. So the one about age and youth and energy is uh, as follows. The colleague says you both represent brilliantly the younger generation that now makes up increasingly um, the House of Representatives. And our colleagues would like to hear your perspective on the role that you think uh, youth and women should be playing around the world in conflict prevention and resolution, and what the U.S. can do to harness their voices and their energy to bolster international security. Congressman? Yeah, I was, I was just having this conversation um, about and it's specifically in Afghanistan, uh, where one of the bright silver linings of, of the recent moment, and this is, it's a perilous moment. And let me be very clear. There is a famine that's coming. If we do not effectively address it, uh, tens, if not hundreds of thousands, potentially millions could die over this wintertime period. So it is very bleak. And I'm seeing zero action from the Biden administration to engage in a substantive way. And I'm disgusted. But setting aside, there was a very good silver lining with the way in which civil society organizations and particularly younger women um, have been stepping up and showing that they're not afraid. And frankly, the Taliban don't really know what to do with it. Um, you know, there's been a lot of, of, of positive movement of very conservative society um, that, you know, I, I would not have expected to occur, but you get some folks with cell phones and they're saying, no, we do have expectations. We do have demands and we're not going to go quietly. And, um, and the, the Taliban, which, you know, weirdly both wants to have a degree of fear, uh, but also doesn't want to ruffle feathers that much um, are, are in a bind. Um, and, and you're seeing that there, you're, you're seeing similar uh, initiatives with younger generations that don't necessarily hew to the same traditional ethnic arm grouped um, uh, dichotomies in, in places like Myanmar. Um, where you know the the the, the three finger salute from uh, the Hunger Games has become the identifying mark, you know, of of the opposition to the Tat Madao. So it's been a very 
you know, I think you're seeing those green shoots and a feeling of, um, of a time to cast off an older generation or just, you know, insist upon not being relegated uh, to, to the back areas because we have ways that we can get a message out uh, regardless of what the traditional power structure may be in an area. Congresswoman? Well, first of all, I appreciate that whoever asked the question thinks that young people and women are uh, really making up the most of this Congress. Millennials are 7% of the current Congress. Women, I think, are about 28. So we got a ways to go. Let's not get carried away. Uh, but uh, I'm glad that in people's imagination, we are the ones running the show. Um, look, I think that, that this is incredibly important. The fact of the matter is most wars are fought by young people. Right? Young people are the ones out in the battlefields. Young people are the ones who are uh, missing school, who are not getting food, right? Like these things are very intrinsically tied to youth. And I hear a lot of people talk uh, about the youth bulge in Sub-Saharan Africa, for instance. And I think that whether that big cohort of young people is a positive or a negative in these countries will entirely depend on how well their governments are able to actually include them in decision-making and bring them into the process and make them feel like it's a country that they want to be part of and want to help build um, versus something that they feel like they need to change and move in a different direction. Um, and so I think this is actually really one of the most critical things that we need to be thinking about as we look at what peace and stability looks like moving forward, especially in places where we have these huge young populations. Um, I think we also, when we look at peace building, I think in many people's imagination that the way a conflict ends is still like two old men in a conference room negotiating. But we actually know that the more people you get involved in that negotiation process, the more likely it is for that deal to stick. And uh, that's very true for young people who both will be the ones who actually probably implement the deal because these things take a long time and you need the buy-in of the next generation. Um, but two, who have a different perspective and, and who, um, again, often were the ones actually doing the fighting. Um, so sometimes that means they're more bought in, sometimes less, um, but, but whose perspective needs to be involved. And so we, we can't just have this top-down government-to-government approach because it excludes so many people um, who are going to be necessary for these peace processes to actually work. I mean, I think we're seeing it um, right now in Cyprus. We have a very top-down model there. It excludes civil society. It excludes young people. Um, and what you find is that their idea of what peace could look like, what a political settlement could look like, it's very different than those who are in charge. And so, um, you know, we need to we need to make sure that, that we're designing settlements that are viable in the long term. We're also seeing this in Sudan, I would argue. Um, and, and a big piece of that is including all of the different perspectives in that negotiating table. Um, we're nearly at the end of our discussion this morning, and we have a final question that takes us back to where we started when we were reflecting together on bipartisanship. Question comes from our audience, and it is as follows. The nation honors Senator Bob Dole today with a state funeral. We are reminded of his contributions from the perspective of the greatest generation. With you both raising issues from the perspective of the millennial generation, how would you like to see opportunities for members of Congress to develop relationships? Are there certain areas for bipartisan cooperation or at least less partisan issues that can provide space to legislate together? Congressman? You know, um, so Senator Dole uh, 
when he was a, a young soldier grievously wounded um, uh, in Italy, was brought back to recuperate at uh, then Percy Jackson uh, Army Hospital uh, in Battle Creek, Michigan, and in, in my, which I represent today. Um, but he also met there uh, Danny Inouye, uh, who later became a senator from Hawaii, and Phil Hart, uh, who later became a senator from Michigan. So all three of them met while they were at um, recuperating from their wounds in the war. Now, uh, I'm glad that we do not have a such a catastrophic conflict where our generation is bonding, um, you know, in, in, in gauze and bandages. Um, but, you know, I think we do need to seek out those areas and, and, and frankly, foreign policy and what the future direction and standing of the U S will be in the world is a fantastic area uh, because it, you know, hopefully is an area where politics stops at the water's edge, but more importantly, really gets to the question of what do we want the United States to be, you know, in this century? You know, we, we have gotten past the post-war moment. We've gotten past the post-Cold War moment. Uh, we, we frankly have enough perspective on, on 9-11 uh, to view it, you know, as obviously a significant, you know, day that changed the course of the past two decades, a, a traumatic tragedy that frankly defined many of our young lives, but also saying, now, two decades on, how do we engage with the world to not only make sure something like that never happens again, but also recognizing that our engagement of the world is more than that. Right? So I think that definitional component, um, that definitional opportunity is there. And, and I think it's ours to seize. But um, in the meantime, there's a lot of folks of a of differing generations that, uh, you know, <laughs> nobody gives up power willingly. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Congresswoman. Yes, well, um, like I think we, we've talked about a lot of areas where there's obviously room for bipartisan work um, just here today with, with uh, Peter and I agreeing on getting our diplomats out of compounds, getting our counterterrorism and counterviolent extremism work to be um, focused on more than just the military, making the interagency work. Um, Peter, I've got so many horror stories for you on the interagency. Um, but, uh, you know, and I think that most of us uh, would agree on the key lessons from our engagements in Afghanistan, even if we disagree on what the policy outcome should have been. The Global Fragility Act is bipartisan. So I think there are a lot of, of ways that we can work together. I think for me, the way I actually think about it is that when we're talking about conflict around the world, when we're talking about peace building stability, what, what we're really telling other countries is that they need to find a way to talk to people they disagree with and resolve those differences, not through violence. And so we cannot then say that we can't work together to find agreements. This is the very thing that we have basically designed our foreign policy around. Um, and so um, it's in our national security interest to find a way to work together on domestic issues, on foreign policy, um, and to show that we can. Um, but we also know that we we have tools. We, we have these techniques we use in other countries on how to bring people together and get them to talk that we could be using here. We're not immune from the very things that we are trying to diagnose and work on in other countries. Um, and so I think there's a lot to learn both ways on, on how we can um, 
do a better job of, of building those ties across the aisle and across different parts of our very vast and diverse country. Um, and I think that that's actually a space where I hope USIP and other groups who do a lot of this peace building work in other countries turn their sights to, because I think we will be most effective in our foreign policy if we approach it with humility and with the understanding that we are going through the same challenges other countries are going through. So how do we figure out how to deal with them together versus us trying to, to portray some kind of um, uh, you know, that we're set aside from it. And then we're just telling other countries how to do things. We're at the end of a, a wonderful hour together. We would like to invite both the Congressman, Congresswoman for final comments and reflections. Uh, may we start with you, Mr. Congressman? Just wanted to say this has been a wonderful opportunity. Thank you to uh, USIP for hosting and to my colleague, Ms. Jacobs. I uh, hope you have a wonderful weekend before we're back on Tuesday. But, <laughs> um, but no, I think it, it's important that we, uh, that those who have this experience and can both speak from a generational standpoint, uh, but also an experiential one uh, to offer that uh, because you need to have those voices represented uh, if you're going to be able to take action based upon uh, those lived experiences. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Congresswoman. Well, thank you. Thank you, um, Mr. Meyer. This has been um, really wonderful. I love when we get to talk about our um, nerdy issues and agree. Um, and uh, I thank you, Lees, for this conversation. It was really great. You know, I, I'll just close by saying that, you know, I think we're at a really pivotal moment for our foreign policy and our national security. And we have an opportunity right now to rethink a lot of the fundamentals, to reimagine what American leadership in the world can look like, and to understand what the world is right now and what it needs and not necessarily be beholden to some of the old legacy systems and approaches that, that we've had. And I think that if we do that, if we're able to actually seize on this moment, um, the future is going to be very bright and we'll, we'll be able to do a lot of great things and we'll be a force for good in the world, but we have to be able to seize on it. And I think a big piece of that is making sure that we do shift and refocus and change the way we do our foreign policy, that we are focused on prevention, that we're investing in things like the Global Fragility Act and and leverage research on um, how to redirect our approaches and fund local communities and enable our diplomats and civilian agencies to lead these efforts. And so I think conversations like this are incredibly important to get us uh, on that path. And all of the work that you do at USIP um, is very important to help us get on that path. So I'm very grateful to you and, and, and very honored um, that you asked us to have this conversation. Um, thanks everyone for joining us. I hope that we all together thank Congresswoman Jacobs, Congressman Meyer for being with us today, for showing us how bipartisanship works. Please know that all of us salute the leadership that you provide for this country. I wish everyone a very happy holiday season. Thank you for being with us. We look forward to our next dialogue. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.